Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of the Corbett Report. You're tuned into Questions for Corbett. And this week, we're going to answer a question that comes in from John, who writes, I wonder if you have done a specific video regarding the creation and true intentions of the WHO. It's clear to me that they do not have our best interest at heart, but I wonder, is the WHO just another hijacked organization that started out with good intentions? Or was it created for the purpose of control and subversion of real science regarding health for the benefit of Big Pharma? Excellent question, John. Thank you for asking it. And I, myself, always feel that I have quite thoroughly covered the World Health Organization, at least during the swine flu scandemic of a decade ago. I know I did a lot of work on that. And every time I go to check that work, because I'm sure there's an article or a video that I did that encapsulated that, I find that there isn't. I That's been spread out over several different articles and videos and different things that I've done. So let's create a sort of one-stop shop for WHO information and discussion here at the Corbett Report that will summarize some of that previous information, bring us up to date on some recent developments, and leave this as a space, obviously, as always, open to the Corbett Report community to contribute your own information and relevant documents regarding your research on the World Health Organization, its origins and intentions. So let's start with brass tacks. I know everyone in the audience has heard of the World Health Organization, certainly as we enter the COVID era. Uh, everyone has heard of the WHO and has some vague sense of it as being some sort of international health body. But what exactly does it do and what powers does it have and from whence does it derive its authority? And the specific answer to that, that is that the World Health Organization is a specialized agency of the United Nations. It was established in April of 1948, specifically on the 7th of April, which is now commemorated as World Health Day in honor of the establishment of the World Health Organization. And it was the first specialized agency of the UN that was subscribed to by all UN members at that time. It currently uh, boasts a membership of 194 states, uh, including every single member of the United Nations, except for uh, Liechtenstein, the Cook Islands, and Mew, for whatever reason, and uh, does have a, a couple of observer states and participants. Uh, Taiwan, as you may know, has an interesting history with the United Nations and was participating as Chinese Taipei for several years, but then was never invited back. <laughs> and there's been some interesting back and forth on that. And Palestine is allowed to sit as an observer, as a liberation movement, um, recognized by the Arab states under a UN resolution. So there are some interesting little quirks in there. But suffice it to say, broadly speaking, the whole world is signatory to the World Health Organization is a member state. And what does that specifically mean? It means that each state has ratified the WHO founding treaty, its constitution, uh, which I will direct you to. Uh, I will direct you to the, uh, the download of basic documents available directly from the WHO website, uh, which includes, of course, the constitution, which was signed in New York in uh, 1948, which established the WHO. I'm not sure there's a a whole lot of very interesting detail in here. As always, I invite you to go and read through it for yourself. Um, but I will direct you to at least the preamble of the Constitution, which brings to my mind the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that remarkable milestone in the history of human rights, as, as the United Nations hails it anyway, uh, which was similarly ratified by the United Gen Nations General Assembly in December of 1948, that gives all these wonderful 
this wonderful rhetoric about all the rights and freedoms and, and uh, of course, uh, freedom from cruelty and torture and imprisonment and degrading treatment and uh, discrimination and all of these things, and you have the right to this and you have the right to that, until you get to Article 29, subsection 3, these rights and freedoms may in no case be exercised contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations. So <laughs> the UN lovingly grants you all of these wonderful rights, except it clearly delineates where those rights ends and it gets to decide when you're stubbing on our toes. What, what could possibly go wrong with a, a constitution or a document like that? Well, similarly with the World Health Organization constitution, again, few would argue with the sort of vague, woolly, undefined uh, principles and rhetoric in its preamble talking about uh, the state of physical, mental, and social well-being uh, being health, not just the absence of disease or infirmity, and uh, they want to achieve the highest attainable standard of health and all of these other things that sound, well, they sound good, but one can quickly realize how such rhetoric could be employed by people who are not acting in good faith uh, to force people into subjugation. And the example of that comes in the third paragraph of this preamble. The health of all peoples is fundamental to the attainment of peace and security and is dependent upon the fullest cooperation of individuals and states. Read and reread that sentence until you understand all of its implications, because that, in a nutshell, I think encapsulates the biosecurity paradigm that I keep going back to, is the new paradigm. Bye-bye War on Terror. I mean, that's still there, and they'll still drag that out as need be, but the new guiding principle and paradigm for this new era of humanity is the biosecurity paradigm, and that is it in a nutshell. The health of all peoples is fundamental to the attainment of peace and security, and is dependent upon the fullest cooperation of individuals and states. You have to cooperate so that we can attain the fullest state of health for everyone. Whatever we decide, the health authorities decide that means, and whatever we ask you to do, well, you're going to have to cooperate in order to achieve that security. Wear a mask, take the vaccine, whatever it is, the brain chip, whatever we say, you will have to do. That is the embedded piece in this. That again, well-meaning people of good intentions could read right over that and think that it just sounds wonderful. And yes, I agree with that. Uh, it's always, the devil is always in the details. So how do these things actually get enacted? Well, I'm not going to go through the whole history of the World Health Organization and how it functioned for the first several decades of its existence. That may be an exploration for a future time, and if there are corporate report members with more information to add along those lines that are of a special interest or note to highlight that you will never see in the mainstream, please do leave them in the comment section at CorbettReport.com, and uh, perhaps I will use that as fodder for future explorations. But let's jump ahead to see that basis of the, the question that John's asking here, is this is this really an organization dedicated to health, or is it uh, being used as, at the very least, a conduit for uh, funneling funds into the big pharma industry? And lo and behold, you don't have to go very far out to see that that is exactly what transpired in the previous scamdemic, as I mentioned earlier, the swine flu scamdemic of one decade ago, uh, which... I was covering at the time and in a number of different reports, and this is, again, as I say, I know I've covered it in many different places. If there was any one encapsulation of the basic story of this, I guess it would be in an article that I wrote called WHO Appoints H1N1 Cover-Up Committee. 
This was several months after the uh, the scam of the scamdemic was uh, really over with, but uh, there was at least the pretense that the WHO was going to appoint some investigators to determine, some independent investigators to determine if they had done anything wrong in their response to the H1N1 pan- pandemic hysteria that... Uh, really was absolutely insane when you look at it. And the basic story of that, for those who didn't see it, as I write here, evidence continues to mount that the WHO declared a pandemic for the relatively mild H1N1 outbreak last year, that being 2009, in order to trigger billions of dollars of automatic vaccine contracts for the benefit of WHO advisors with connections to Big Pharma. In the face of growing opposition and a loss of credibility due to the conflicts of interest among key WHO advisors, WHO Director Margaret Chan called Monday for a frank, critical, transparent, credible, and independent review of our performance before entering a closed-door meeting with the independent experts. No photographers were allowed inside, and press was allowed only occasional access to the meeting. How transparent. Hopes for a genuinely independent investigation into the scandal were quickly dashed, however, when it was discovered that one of the group's members, Professor John McKenzie of Curtin University in Australia, was a member of the very panel that advised the WHO to declare the H1N1 pandemic. In fact, McKenzie is already on record with his assessment of his own actions. I think we did everything right, he told Der Spiegel last year. (laughs) That's the independent investigator, huh? Clues to the likely findings and recommendations of the group in Geneva can be derived from other comments McKenzie made to the German paper. The system of pandemic levels needs to be revised, he was quoted as saying. We need to fine-tune phase six so that the severity of the disease is also taken into account. Analysts are expecting the review to find that the WHO was a victim of fog of war and loose definitions for a pandemic and that no individual will be held responsible for the billions of dollars, billions of dollars that have been spent around the world on vaccines that governments are now giving away and may ultimately have to throw out. Also at issue is why the WHO changed its definition of a pandemic virus just as it was considering whether the emerging swine flu may fit that criteria. A definition available on the website before the panic specifically listed enormous numbers of deaths and illness as a criterion for declaring a pandemic. By April, the definition had been changed to specifically allow for mild pandemics. The cover-up committee is being formed ahead of the final report of the ongoing Council of Europe investigation into the scandal. Just met last month, the council released a draft report of its investigation into the affair, delivering a blistering critique of the WHO and its motives for declaring the H1N1 pandemic. Some members of these advisory bodies evidently have professional links to certain pharmaceutical groups, notably through receiving extensive research grants from the big pharmaceutical groups, so that the neutrality of their advice could be contested. To date, WHO has failed to provide convincing evidence to counter these allegations, and the organization has not published the relevant declarations of interest, taking such a reserved position. The organization has joined other bodies, such as the European Medicines Agency, EMEA, which likewise have still not published such documents. The article does go on from there uh, to reference, for example, Wolfgang Wodarg, who did make an appearance in the recent Corbett Report episode on the lies, damp lies, and coronavirus statistics. So, yes, there is a lot of information there that points to the fact that the, the gist, the essence of that story was that there was a big 
push for the avian flu panic that arose in around 2005 and the WHO and other bodies started to get involved in 2006-7 and really pump up that threat. Uh, they were saying that the, the, the government should be stockpiling Tamiflu, that they were going to need all these vaccinations. That fizzled out and died out. And all of that research money that Big Pharma had been investing in the bird flu scam, scamdemic that didn't even happen, uh, was going to go down the drain. And then suddenly the, the swine flu will use that as the excuse. And the WHO declares a, pand uh, a public health emergency of international concern, a PHEIC, which is part of the International Health Regulations of 2005, to which basically the entire world is a signatory member, which does such things as allow the WHO to operate with impunity in any given space. And uh, as was being declared at the time, even by mainstream experts, uh, when this was uh, invoked in the Ebola scare of several years ago, mainstream reports, even in Newsweek, were saying that that public health emergency of international concern could even allow NATO to go in and militarily operate in countries in, in Africa or elsewhere if need be and other such things, those kinds of sweeping powers come bottled up with the PHEIC, as well as allowing the, uh, the governments around the world the chance to flip that switch, declare there's an emergency, we need to buy all these vaccines from the vaccine manufacturers, and ka-ching, ka-ching, guess who profits? Not only the WHO, but also, of course, the members on the committee that was advising the WHO on the severity of the H1N1 pandemic that caused them to declare the public health emergency of, of international concern that were sitting on the boards of various pharmaceutical manufacturers that stood to directly profit from them. And we'll detail a little bit of that. Um, but let's put a couple of things on the record. For example, as the Council of Europe noted, the WHO changed its definition of a pandemic just one month before declaring the H1N1 pandemic emergency. And uh, you can get this directly from, well, directly from the World Health Organization site by way of the Wayback Machine, which I know that everyone in my audience is well familiar with by now, right? But at any rate, there will be a link in the show notes to the Wayback Machine archived copy of the World Health Organization's page on pandemic preparedness as it appeared on April 18th of 2009, where it declared that an influenza pandemic occurs when a new influenza virus appears against which the human population has no immunity, resulting in epidemics worldwide with enormous numbers of deaths and illness. That was the WHO's own definition of an influenza pandemic in April of 2009. One month forward, go to the saved copy of this website from May 20th of 2009, and suddenly a disease epidemic occurs when there are more cases of the disease than normal. A pandemic is a worldwide epidemic of a disease. An influenza pandemic may occur when a new influenza virus appears against which the human population has no immunity. Period. Yes, they literally just removed any reference to enormous numbers of deaths and illness. <laughs> you don't even need that as part of the definition in May of 2009, right when they started to declare H1N1 as an influenza pandemic. Hmm. 
I wonder, I wonder why they did that. Oh, that's right. So that they could declare it a pandemic. And that was part of the conclusion of that report from the Council of Europe. I will include the link so you can go and read it for yourself. The handling of the H1N1 pandemic, more transparency needed. Uh, That was the draft report uh, by the Council of Europe that was released in 2010. And uh, there was more information on that uh, that was followed up, even by mainstream sources like the the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, had a report up on that that I'll throw in the the show notes, uh, talking about the World Health Organization and uh, conspiracy. Uh, Again, you don't have to go out on a limb. I mean, even the BMJ is running reports on WHO and the pandemic flu conspiracies, which specifically noted that there was conflicts of interest in the advisory panel that was advising the WHO on whether or not the H1N1 pandemic was worth declaring as an emergency. So again, there's a lot to go into. I will throw in a link to a very important article from uh, William Engdahl, who had an article, WHO Swine Flu Pope Under Investigation for Gross Conflict of Interest, looking specifically at Dr. Flu, Professor Albert Osterhaus, a Dutch researcher who was very pervasive and everywhere in, certainly in the Netherlands and in Europe generally, hyping up first the H5N1, the avian flu pandemic possibility, the scare surrounding that, and then jumping on uh, the H1N1 pandemic hysteria bandwagon, uh, and who, surprise, surprise, had, again, financial interest in companies that financially stood to benefit from that. Uh, Another incredible, uh, and just, I mean, this is just... It would be hilarious if it was not so in-your-face uh, mocking of you and your intelligence, but uh, I will include a link to the AFP report from December of 2009, which notes that World Health Organization chief yet to be vaccinated against swine flu. World Health Organization chief Margaret Chan revealed Tuesday that she had yet to be vaccinated against the swine flu virus, which had killed over 11,500 people worldwide. <gasps> I have asked my medical service to inquire where I can go to get my vaccination, she told reporters in Geneva, pointing out that she has just returned from leave. (laughs) You can't expect me to have a vaccine. I was on leave. The WHO director general stressed that she would, of course, get vaccinated and that many of my staff at the WHO have already taken their jabs against the H1N1 virus. Keep in mind, this was December 29, 2009, i.e. the the doorstep of 2010. The entire pandemic flu hysteria had long since come and gone by that point and had fizzled out into nothing. And she never got a vaccine. Think about that. And the only surprising part of that story is that it was admitted and reported on. And don't worry, guys. Yeah, of course I'll get my... I just have to find some sort of window in my schedule and it was never followed up. Surprise, surprise. But that's exactly how these things roll. On a much more serious and concerning note than even all of that, because at once, in one sense, if this was just a swindle, well, then it's just a swindle. I mean, yes, of course, this is just a big money pile that the pigs are going to come feed at the trough because the trough is there. You know, this is, this is, what else would you expect from government? And we could all roll our eyes at this, but it's actually, of course, as you know, much, much worse than this. And the power grab that is implicit in this biosecurity paradigm is really incredible, really breathtaking to the point where people still, I don't think, have their full mind around it. Part of that was revealed in January of 2010 uh, in an article that I, I wrote on the subject, Insult to Injury, Why We Must Oppose the WHO Global Tax 
proposals. Fresh on the heels of a Dutch investigation into the conflicts of interest of their chief influenza advisor and the bombshell announcement that the Council of Europe will be probing their role in creating their, the WHO's role, in creating and sustaining panic over the recent H1N1 outbreak in order to sell vaccines for Big Pharma, the World Health Organization is now considering innovative proposals for raising additional revenues, including levying a global tax on internet activity. The startling revelation comes in a report submitted by an expert working group ahead of the biannual meeting of the WHO's executive board, tasked with finding a financial mechanism for funding the WHO's mandate of transferring health technologies to the developing world. The team of bureaucrats and medical researchers have spent the past 14 months developing a variety of suggestions, including a digital tax, internet traffic is huge and likely to increase rapidly. This tax could yield tens of billions of US dollars from a broad base of users a financial transaction tax. Brazil's financial transaction tax, set at 0.38%, levied on paying bills online and major withdrawals. It was raising an estimate, estimated, $20 billion per year and funding some 87% of the government's key social protection program, Bolsa Familia, before it was voted down. Before it was voted down. An arms trade tax. A 10% tax on the arms trade market, which might net about $5 billion per annum. The funds raised from such schemes, ranging from the tens of billions of dollars, depending on which plans are enacted, would be ostensibly used to aid in the transfer of medical technologies to the developing world so that local research, development, and production of medicines can be ramped up. It is argued that this is needed to fill the gap by pharmaceutical companies who have no motivation to produce medicines for areas of the world that can't pay for them. Well, again, I think the implications of setting up a global tax, including an internet tax, so that we can fund the World Health Organization and its operations after what we've just seen occur over the last several months? Oh, yeah. Again, you don't have to speculate about what the ultimate end goal of this establishment is. It is global government. And global government by decree of health technocrats, essentially. Uh, Of course, the real question that this gets to, though, is the funding. I mean, as always, follow the money. This is not about some bureaucrats doing a little hustle in in Geneva uh, on the behalf of the United Nations. That's small potatoes. No, it is the string pullers who are really making the decisions here. So the real question then is, well, how is the World Health Organization funded? And well, we don't have to, again, we don't have to speculate anything about that. We can go to the, even the World Economic Forum, our good friends at the WEF, the co-hosts of Event 201, who have uh, announced the great re- the global reset uh, as a result of this new COVID normal. They have a page up on how is the World Health Organization funded, where they break down the major sponsors of the WHO. But, of course, you will already know from having watched the Who is Bill Gates documentary Exactly who is one of the biggest funders of the WHO? From the start, the World Health Organization has directed the global response to the current pandemic. From its initial monitoring of the outbreak in Wuhan, and its declaration in January that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission, to its live media briefings and its technical guidance on country-level planning and other matters, the WHO has been the body setting the guidelines and recommendations shaping the global response to this outbreak. But even the World Health Organization itself is largely reliant on funds from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 
The WHO's most recent donor report shows that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the organization's second largest donor behind the United States government. The Gates Foundation single-handedly contributes more to the World Health Body than Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Russia, and the UK combined. What's more, current World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus is in fact, like Bill Gates himself, not a medical doctor at all, but the controversial ex-Minister of Health of Ethiopia, who was accused of covering up three cholera outbreaks in the country during his tenure. Before joining the WHO, he served as chair of the Gates-founded Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, and sat on the board of the Gates-founded Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and the Gates-funded Stop TB Partnership. Now, it goes without saying that if you have not yet watched the Who is Bill Gates documentary, you must go directly to corporatereport.com gates and watch, read, or listen to that documentary in its entirety. It's all up there for free. But let's just underline a few of the points made there. For example, number one, yes, you can go to the WHO's most recent results report, its program budget for 2018-2019, the midterm review, where on page 82 of that report, the WHO has provided a handy-dandy infographic on the top 20 contributors to the program budget 2018, showing that, yes, the number one contributor is the United States of America with uh, so many billions in uh, assessed contributions and then so many billions in voluntary contributions. Second to the US of A is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, followed by, number three, the UK. So, yes, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the second largest funding vehicle for the WHO. And if the US really does withdraw its membership and or uh, either completely eliminate its contributions to the WHO or scale them back to the same level as China as Trump has talked about, whatever the case, if any of that were to occur, it would make the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation the largest single funding entity for the WHO. And he who pays the checks makes the rules, as we all know. So uh, again, regardless, even if the WHO was founded by angels with the noblest of intentions, it is quite apparent how such an, an organization could be taken over for nefarious purposes or for any purposes, nefarious or otherwise, even benevolent, but by a single entity or group uh, wielding that much power um, can certainly direct the entire field of global public health, which was one of the important points raised in that Who is Bill Gates documentary. So definitely something to reflect on there. Uh, follow the money, as usual. Uh, another thing to pick up on there is the Director General of the WHO, also with ties back to Gates, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, uh, who, uh, well, let's let's read from an article that uh, William Engdahl again wrote about uh, Tedros back in uh, February of this year, just as things were really kicking off. Uh, he wrote, "Who is a, who's Tedros?" He, uh, in which he notes, "Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus was voted WHO Director General in 2017, replacing the controversial Dr. Margaret Chan of Hong Kong. He is the first African to head the health agency and the first one not a medical doctor. According to Wikipedia, he got a BA degree in biology at the University of Asmara in Eritrea. He then served in a junior position at the Ministry of Health under the Marxist dictatorship of Mengistu." 
After the fall of Mengistu in 1991, Tedros went on to the UK and took a doctorate of philosophy in community health from the University of Nottingham in 2000, with a doctoral dissertation on the effects of dams on malaria transmission in Tigray region, northern Ethiopia. He then went on to become Minister of Health from 2005 to 2012 under Prime Minister Mela Zenawi. There, he met former President Bill Clinton and began a close collaboration with Clinton and the Clinton Foundation and its Clinton HIV AIDS Initiative, CHAI. He also developed a close relation with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As health minister, Tedros would also chair the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria that was co-founded by the Gates Foundation. The Global Fund has been riddled with fraud and corruption scandals. Surprise, surprise. Today, the largest donors of the WHO are the Gates Foundation and its associated Gavi Alliance for Vaccination. With backers like Gates and Clinton, it was no surprise that Tedros went on, after a stint as Ethiopian foreign minister, to win the post of WHO Director General, this despite being the first non-physician to hold the position. During Tedros's three-year campaign to win the WHO post, he was charged with having covered up three major epidemics of cholera while health minister in Ethiopia, mislabeling the cases as acute watery diarrhea, a symptom of cholera, in an attempt to play down the sign- significance of the epidemics, charges he denied. It goes on from there, but yes, definitely a major player with some interesting connections that should be no surprise to anyone who follows these things closely. And let's... Let's bring things forward to today, as noted in the Gates documentary. Yes, of course, there is the infamous declaration that the WHO made uh, back in January that there's no evidence of human-to-human transmission. Relax, guys. Chill out. China's handling this. Everything's okay. Which, of course, changed on dime when the narrative decided to change. When the switch was flipped, they got on board with a certain message. But it's interesting the way that that unfolded. Um, For those who weren't paying so close attention at the time, it's good to go back and re-look at when and how the WHO actually declared the health emergency for the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, This coming from Stat News on January 30th, WHO declares coronavirus outbreak a global health emergency, which notes that the World Health Organization on Thursday declared the outbreak of a novel coronavirus a global health emergency, an acknowledgement of the risk the virus proposes to countries beyond its origin in China and of the need for a more coordinated international response to the outbreak. In making the announcement, WHO leaders urged countries not to restrict travel or trade to China, even as some have shut down borders and limited visas. And it goes on in this article to make that a very specific point about this. It says the declaration comes as individual countries have started to close borders and restrict trade to China, and its airlines have halted some flights. Experts say such measures are not effective in stopping the spread of a virus and may discourage countries experiencing outbreaks from being forthright. The PHEIC gave Tedros the authority to formally recommend that countries not limit travel and trade to China, though other nations do not have to comply. Which is interesting in and of itself, declaring a global health emergency just so they can say, hey guys, you have to please keep going to China. (laughs) It's a very, very strange part of all of this as as it unfolded that got quickly buried under the rug. And the WHO, of course, has had its hands in absolutely every aspect of this crisis as it has developed over the last several months. And of course, we all remember that the WHO's emergency chief, Dr. Michael Ryan, saying that at some point it might be necessary to for to forcibly come in and take infected people out of their homes, away from their families and quarantine them. 
or take your children, come in and take your children and quarantine them as long as they have the possibility of spreading the infection. That gives us the power to do basically anything. And at the moment, in most parts of the world, <clears throat> due to lockdown, most of the transmission that's actually happening in many countries now is happening in the household, at family level. In some senses, transmission has been taken off the streets and pushed back into family units. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them. Yes, the WHO has its fingers in every part of this pie and is definitely worthy of a great degree of scrutiny. But I think it does act more as a conduit for various agendas rather than necessarily the font of those agendas. But it is certainly the public face of the new biosecurity paradigm, the public health emergency coordinators who will be telling us what to do in the future if they have their way. And again, we don't have to speculate about that. They have come out and said as much, lamented the fact that their word is not law. I say this advisedly because going back to that scamdemic season of 2009-2010, uh, I did write in early January an article on WHO's Chan, that was then Director General Margaret Chan, public's obedience to health officials may be fading. Lamenting the likely outcome of recent revelations that the WHO knowingly and unnecessarily hyped the recent H1N1 influenza panic, WHO Director General Margaret Chan admitted, the days when health officials could issue advice based on the very best medical and scientific data and expect populations to comply may be fading. Well, I'll leave that there. There is the link to that quote that comes from a WHO executive board report at the biannual meeting of the WHO back in 2010, but it's there on the record, and that's ultimately what this is about. The WHO is there to be the vehicle, the conduit, for the would-be dictators of this new biosecurity paradigm to issue their com commands through their puppets that are sitting on their lap, the Tedros or Chan or whoever it is at any given moment, uh, who has been installed to be the mouthpiece for Bill and Melinda Gates, the Clinton Initiative, various other organizations that are there funding and directing these organizations from behind the scenes. And it is a very worrying aspect of what's going on right now. Of course, all of this does have to do with Big Pharma and their connections, their financial connections to the very advisors who are sitting on the boards that are declaring these public health emergencies and all of the other scams that you can think of. There is a wealth of material to investigate here. So as always, there's going to be a voluminous amount of material in the show notes for this edition of Questions for Corbett. I do very much invite and beseech you to go and look through it as a starting point for your research. And as always, I invite Corbett Report members to come back and report back to headquarters about any relevant links, documents, or any other information that you can provide on the WHO and its checkered past. As I say, it may be worth looking into the history of the organization overall in more depth. Um, so I do invite you to participate in that open source investigation. As always, I am your humble servant, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, out here providing this particular public service, and I invite you to join me at CorbettReport.com, where I do make these types of explorations on a regular basis. I am looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.